This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we're interviewing Lisa Bate. She's a wildlife biologist at Glacier National Park in northern Montana. She specializes in birds and bats, overseeing multiple research, inventory, and monitoring programs, including harlequin ducks, songbirds, raptors, black swifts, Clark's nutcrackers, and bats. Lisa Bate also oversees wildlife and compliance monitoring for projects like the reconstruction of the Going to the Sun and many glacier roads, focused on preventing detrimental effects to grizzly bears. Prior to her employment at Glacier, Lisa worked as a private research wildlife biologist, focusing mainly on birds, cavity nesting species, and their habitat. So welcome, Lisa. It's great to be talking with you. Uh, We're interested in birds and bats in Glacier today. So welcome. Thanks, Jay. Um, I think it's springtime. It seems like all the birds are coming back at a normal time this year. Uh Last year they were two, three, four weeks behind, so it's nice to see. Good. So uh, you're a wildlife biologist in Glacier. uh, So tell us a little bit about your background and how you develop these specialties in birds and bats. Okay, um, well, ever since I was a kid, I was one of those kids that I was always in the creek trying to catch anything I could get my hands on, and I sort of am still that way as an adult. Uh-huh. But when I first started, I thought I was going to be a veterinarian, I always knew I wanted to work with animals. Uh-huh. But as I worked for veterinarians, I was like, nah, this isn't quite what I want to do. And then I finally met a non-game wildlife biologist, had no idea that that was a career, and once I learned it was, it was just a straight shot, and I got my degrees. And um, oh. at first I was like everyone else. I loved working with the bears and wolves and mountain lions, all the big predators. But as time went on, I realized there were a whole lot of biologists, a whole lot of voices for the big animals, and very few voices for the small animals, even though some of the issues they faced were just as big. Right. And then the other thing I realized is I'm very much a morning person. And I loved waking up and seeing and going out and listening to the birds, watching them. And mammals, all the big mammals, you don't, it's rare you get to see them, and most of the work is night work. So I just slowly gravitated toward non-game birds and bats over the years. But I do work with all species. Um, Another part of my job here in Glacier is I oversee all the compliance and wildlife monitoring for any construction project going on in the park. Mm. And that mainly is to minimize adverse impacts to grizzly bears. But it's for all wildlife, and we just really work with contractors and engineers and just teach them about working in bear country. So what kind of unique birds uh, do you see in the park? Well, (laughs) I, I saw that's a hard question because... Every bird has a unique niche. Um, Uh, uh. Some are common, like the American robin, western tanager, and some are very rare or just have very special niches. Some of the birds that are um, 
unique in my mind are the ones that are considered species of concern. Um, none of our birds are threatened or endangered, but we have a good number that are um, species of concern. So either loss of habitat or um, human disturbance or just loss of numbers for unknown reasons. Um, and we have several research programs, monitoring programs, inventory pro programs looking at those. Um, Black swifts, um, I just gave a talk this morning to interpretive staff. Uh, Glacier National Park is the epicenter of black swift habitat in Montana. Um, this is a really unusual bird that shows up right when all the other neotropical migrant birds are finishing up their breeding season. Mm -hmm. These birds are showing up and starting their breeding season, and they only nest near or behind waterfalls that are fed by perennial streams, and most perennial streams occur those that are fed by glaciers or snowpack. Um, we also have a good research program going on with harlequin ducks. These are, it's a sea duck, and they migrate inland to breed on our whitewater streams here in the park. Um, they're unique because they're the only animal, the only species that can access a foraging resource in whitewater on the stream. So you'll see them diving, they're a diving duck, and they go through the rapids like they're in their own little kayak, but they can um, dive down to the bottom of the stream in these rapids, even at the top of waterfalls, to eat invertebrates, uh, small fish, eggs, things like that. So are, are, what birds remain in the park during the winter or are found there? Oh, that's a good question. A lot of our, like, cavity nesting birds, you know, the ones that go into cavities and mm -hmm. stay warm in the winter, mm -hmm. um, some of our bald eagles do. Golden eagles, as far as we can tell, typically migrate out. Owls stay year-round. Uh, kinglets stay year-round. The golden crown, the ruby crown, migrates, which is really intriguing because they're the same genus, mm. but one leaves, one stays. Mm. Um, our owls stay year-round. What species um, of owls do you have? Um, we have great gray owl, great horned owl, northern hawk owl, uh, boreal owl, pygmy owl, northern solwet, uh, western screech. Oh, we did get our first barn owl. Some of these are called accidentals. We might just have them one or two times show up in the park, but we add them to our bird list, and they all contribute to the 279 known species of birds in the park. Do you have some snowy owls as well? Oh, yeah, snowy owls. Since, but, see, that's considered an accidental. We don't get them every year. Oh, yeah. Um, we used to have burrowing owls. I have not heard you know, received a report of a burrowing now since mm -hmm. I've worked here since 2009, so. You don't have any spotted owls coming into the park, do you? No. Oh, but we do have a close relative, the barred owl. And, you know, they, that their range has pretty much exploded over the years coming from back east, and we have those. And we just had a pair hooting this um, spring right outside my office. That was fun because they yeah. had that really cool call, the who cooks for you? You know, in in Oregon, there was an article in uh, Audubon magazine. There was an article about uh, barn owls competing with the spotted owl, and that they are trying to get rid of the barn owls. 
Yeah, that's a big problem. And I don't know if you've heard the story a little deeper. What's happening is the barred owls are breeding with the spotted owls, but mm-hmm. the young are sterile. Oh, really? So that's a one-way ticket to right. disappearance. That's why biologists are so concerned about barred owls right. in that area. Over on the west side, what's one likely to see on or around Lake McDonald? Boy, this time of year, all kinds of, you know, all of our new tropical migrants are back. But, um, you know, water birds, it depends on the season. Mm-hmm. But in the winter, we have lots of golden eyes, buffalo heads. We can get grebes, mergansers. We can get both trumpeter and tundra swans here in the winter. That's always a treat. Does Lake McDonald freeze over in the winter? Sometimes, sometimes not. But lower McDonald Creek, a lot of the birds congregate on that, and that's really rare to see that frozen. And parts of Lake McDonald can stay open. So it really depends if it's frozen or not. If it's frozen, most water birds leave. But we still get... um, you know, it's a good time to come watch for bald eagles hunting the American coots that will, you know, they'll gather in what we call a raft, a large group of ducks out there, or water birds. Mm-hmm. The coot's not really a duck, it's a water bird. But the eagles love to hunt those, and they'll just dive at them until they get exhausted, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden the bird can't dive underwater, and that's when the eagles can get them. Oh, really? Huh? And then in the summer, um, you know, all the songbirds... Western tanagers, the bright yellow and orange bird that so many people ask me about because it's just this stunning bright bird. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have all kinds of sparrows, all kinds of warblers. The warblers are coming back. I don't think I've heard. Oh, today I just heard my first McGillray's warbler of the year. But we already have yellow rump warbler, orange crown warbler, Townsend's warblers back. Flycatchers are coming back. I've heard Hammond's flycatchers. Yeah, quite the suite. And most of our songbirds are both on the east side and west side. There's some birds that are more abundant, one side of the divide or the other, and it just sort of depends on what habitat they're seeking. When you travel up uh, the Going to the Sun Road to Logan Pass, uh, what birds are you likely to see up there at the top? That's a fun mm-hmm. question because one of my jobs, which is one of the most fun parts of my job, is I get to do breeding bird surveys in the park. And one is over Logan Pass. I start at Wild Goose Island. I have to stop at 50 points coming over the road, do these surveys in five hours or less, and stop and record all the birds I hear or see in three minutes. And up at the pass, that's where we might pick the high elevation species up, like American pipits or gray crown rosy finches or the Clark's nutcrackers. In the hermit thrush, we have hermit thrush. They're only up high, whereas our Swainson's thrushes are down low. Is the uh, north-south spine of the mountain range a flyway for migrating hawks and eagles? Any of the fall or spring? Have you heard of our Mount Brown Hawk Watch here in the park? No, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, so years ago in the 1990s, the biologists were studying eagles and one of them noticed if you stood in the parking lot at Lake McDonald Lodge and looked up to Mount Brown Lookout, all of a sudden they hit it on a good day. They saw all these golden eagles migrating past. So they did a study for three years, and they counted nearly 2,000 golden eagles Holy migrating smokes. past Mount Brown 
every year, every fall. Peak migrations like October 10th, somewhere in there. But then we were hearing concerns about golden eagle numbers declining due to several of the risks they face. Right, yeah. And so our citizen science coordinator, Jamie Bell, and I, we started started talking like, well, maybe we should get a hawk watch here in the park to try to augment some of the data from outside the park just to aid in golden eagle and raptor conservation. Mm -hmm. So we spent like five years sort of scoping out a place the trail up to Mount Brown is one of the steepest trails in the park. So we were trying to avoid that, but guess what? That's where we ended up. It turned mm. out that was the best location. Count Golden Eagles. So just two years ago, we officially made it a hawk count site. So anybody in the world can go on the web and look at what we're seeing in the fall. Those numbers are updated daily. And... Um, it's super exciting. Um, we have lots of people that like to come and help. And if people can't do the hike up to Mount Brown, it's, it's five switchbacks below the lookout. Mm. It, we also have, will have people, we've got another grant this fall from the Glacier National Park Conservancy and its donors to have staff or a volunteer on site right there by our interpretive sign near Lake McDonald Lodge, and we'll have scopes up and we'll be counting the eagles as they fly by starting the last week of September mm -hmm. through October, weather permitting. So are there any species, what species are found around St. Mary Lake and Two Medicine Lake over on the east side? A lot of the same ones, but, you know, it's a little higher elevation. I think the species that uh, comes to mind that is more abundant divide then west of the divide is the Clark's Nutcracker. Have you ever heard of that one? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. We've had a graduate student, Vlad Kovalenko, just finished up his uh, master's degree on Clark's Nutcracker. They are a highly unusual bird because they co-evolved with the white bark pine tree. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know, but the white bark pine tree just was listed as threatened um, oh, by the yeah. wildlife. And that is critical for the Clark's Nutcracker because these two species have co-evolved over the millennia together. Mm -hmm. The Clark's Nutcracker is the only bird in North America that has what we call a sublingual pouch. That is a pouch under its tongue, sub below the tongue. And you know what pine nuts are, that size of nut, that's the size of nut that, um, or seed that the white bark pine makes. Mm -hmm. But they're contained in this super, super hard uh, pine cone that doesn't break open on its own. But the Clark's Nutcracker, which is a corvid in the crow-raven family, has this beak that's one and a half inches long, and it's just like a jackhammer. And it can pound that cone, get those seeds out, and put them in its little pouch. Mm -hmm. Then it goes around and caches them, buries them, mm -hmm. and... Or the following spring, when there there might be not a lot of there might not be a lot of food around, mm -hmm. and these birds, because they are corvids, have this incredible memory, and they can remember where like ninety eight percent of the seeds are really? being buried. They can carry a hundred seeds at a time in this pouch. Holy smokes! But the cool thing is, the two percent of the seeds that they forget where they were or don't need them or don't get to. 
those seeds germinate because that Clark's Nutcracker planted them exactly at the depth they need to be planted to germinate. And that is almost 100% the way that new white bark pine trees germinate in Glacier National Park. And Clark's Nutcrackers, if they, it's a bad year for white bark pine, they tend not to reproduce. A study down in Yellowstone confirmed that. And we've been trying to look at that. Um, we've had some good cone crops the last few years, so we've been seeing Clarks and Young around, so that's been a good sign. We want to keep that going, make sure that they still can breed here in the park. Uh, you mentioned doing research. Uh, what kind of research projects are you engaged in right now? Well, we're just finishing up the Clark's Nutcracker project, but uh -huh. we'll continue doing a little bit of that with doing occupancy surveys and counting cones, um, black swift surveys, um, inventory. We went from knowing of only four colonies in the entire state of Montana in 2011 to now we know of 60 colonies, and that's just been this concerted effort with Montana Audubon, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And the amazing thing is that most of those colonies are here in Glacier National Park. And it, it's no wonder we have over 3,000 waterfalls here in the park, and that's where they like to nest. Oh. A super exciting project is I have a new grad student that just started last year, Holly Holmes. She's been a wildlife technician for me the last two years, and she was looking for a graduate project. and. We're always struggling with how to really count harlequin ducks well because the habitat where they breed is pretty rugged. You know, it's these fast-moving mountain streams, and sometimes the bushwhack is so horrendous that you really can't even see the side of the stream. Mm. And we want to know, are their numbers stable, inclining, or increasing or decreasing? All right. By all the signs we have, both on the wintering grounds, where they spend the winter on the Pacific Coast, and on the breeding grounds, their numbers are decreasing. So we're trying to come up with really good ways to count them so we have a better handle on it. There are a lot of times we might see zero ducks, but it could be because it wasn't a good year for ducks because the water was too high or um, too muddy and they couldn't um, eat enough and couldn't produce eggs because they didn't have the fat. But she's looking at three techniques that are non-invasive, boots on the ground, just doing the surveys with two people. We leapfrog uh -huh. and count all the ducks we see. And then using camera traps, putting two cameras a mile apart on streams. One is programmed to take pictures anytime something moves. Uh -huh. And the other one will take three pictures in a row every five minutes. Wow. And never been tested on streams. We just had a graduate student use it for links here in the park, and um, it was very effective for uh, calculating how many links we have in the park, but never on water. So it's a cutting-edge science. And then we're also, she's going to be investigating eDNA, which stands for environmental DNA, which is really where the cutting-edge science is coming in. And um, this is brand new to us, but, you know, when someone gets lost in the woods, you know how they send a search dog out to look for them? Uh, well, yeah. whenever an animal moves, they were always sloughing hair or skin or feces or scat. Uh -huh. And you can pick up 
a feather or scat and test it and know what species you have. That's called environmental DNA. Um, we use it now for aquatic invasive species, like you can take a sample in a lake or on a stream and see if you have um, quagga mussels there, um, things like that. So it's super powerful, but we've never tested it for harlequin ducks, an animal that's in and out of the water. Do we still get good samples of eDNA? And so we ran a pilot season last year, and even though we had floods all of June last year, remember it was like the floods of Yellowstone? Right, yeah. We had floodwaters up here too. Um, but all 10 streams that we surveyed on, we got positive hits for eDNA for Harlequin ducks. And what's super exciting with that is three of those streams, we never saw ducks, but we still got positive hits. And um, so Holly's still looking at through all of her pictures, but that will be her master's, and she'll finish, and she just really is starting. She'll finish in 2025. Uh, that's well, uh, I want to get to bats, but uh, uh, we have plenty to talk about on birds as well. So uh, can you do another half hour on bats? Yeah, I'm sorry. I I get excited about all our wildlife because we have so many cool species here, and I know I just can go on and on. Well, uh, yeah. Well, I can. Uh, if you can give me another half hour, uh, we'll we'll I'll ask some more questions about birds. Okay. Yeah. Go. Okay. You mentioned uh, that there are some birds that are of, of concern. We just talk about those. Yeah. So the ones I mentioned that we're doing research on: harlequin ducks, Clark's nutcrackers, uh -huh. and swifts. Eagles. They're all species of concern um, for various reasons. Um, right. And um, so we do that. We also run a bird banding station because um, having a bird banding station, it's called a MAP station, which stands for Monitoring Avian Production and Survivorship. And bird numbers are declining worldwide, and it's really critical for biologists to know why and where. Is it on the breeding grounds, on their molting grounds, or their wintering grounds? And by banding birds in a national park, we can, if that bird flies to, let's say, Mexico or Colombia or somewhere, and someone finds that bird with the band, they can let us know that, hey, your bird showed up here, and then we can sort of learn where they go to overwinter and just sort of look at what's happening with the habitats down there. Mm. When the birds come back, we want to know how many survived the winter, how many are reproducing here, and, and how many young are being produced. So that's another project that we work on here. Do you offer classroom-type uh, offerings for visitors to the park about birds? Not too many. That's mainly covered by our interpretive staff. But uh -huh. that being said, this past Saturday, I just taught an all-day class from 8 to 4 on harlequin ducks. You know, it's part classroom and then part in the field. We go looking for ducks. Mm -hmm. So I do do that. I get invited to give talks places, and I do things like that. I, this morning, I just went and presented on birds and bats to our interpretive staff that are just coming on. There's a lake to the north of St. Mary Lake, Lake Sherborne. Are there some birds that are found there that aren't found elsewhere? No, 
But, you know, Lake Sherbert is interesting because it's, it has a dam on it. Uh-huh. So it doesn't have a lot of shoreline vegetation. So what we tend to see there are water birds at certain times. But Swift Current Lake, that's just above Sherburn, we've got a pair of loons that are trying to nest there right now. We're trying mm-hmm. to put in a closure to protect them because loons are, you know, unusual birds, very low reproductive rate too, a species of concern. And they can't walk on land, so their nests are literally within like a meter of the stream's edge. But they're super sensitive to human disturbance. And if people come by too close in a kayak or a boat or walk near it, that bird will flush off, leaving those eggs vulnerable to either weather or predators. So we're putting in a small closure just saying, you know, just stay back. And once the chicks hatch, we can lift those closures because the adults can protect them better. But we're trying that right now. Uh, have you ever done a count of how many bird species have been found in the park? Yeah, we have a bird list, um, and you can find that online. And right now there are 278 birds on that list. We need to add one more that um, a biologist and I found, heard, two years ago. It was an accidental. It was a gray-cheeked thrush coming through from Alaska in the fall, in September. And that was super exciting. But, you know, a lot of these um, are what we call accidentals. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of them breed in the park. And this bird list will show you what breeds in the park and is it found east or west of the divide, what season, is it spring, summer, fall, or winter, and how common they are. Are they really rare or uncommon or common? So that bird list um, that we update periodically give a person all that information. When you go north into Canada, what's the park just north of you? Waterton? Uh, yeah, Waterton, Waterton Lake. Waterton Lake National Water- Park, yeah. yeah. Do you cooperate with people in that park to, on your bird studies? Yeah, we really have in the past quite a bit, but when COVID hit and the border shut down, that really shut down a lot of our work. But I'm still in contact with some of the biologists up there. But, you know, we're hoping to rekindle that relationship. Um, like many things during the COVID era, we just COVID era, we just had to put it on a shelf until things got better. Oh. But they help us with harlequin ducks, um, they, the clerks, nutcrackers, eagles, things like that. Black Swifts, that, that was a really fun story because um, when we first started doing our Black Swift work, we didn't really think we would find them east of the divide. We thought most Black Swift nests would be west of the divide, uh-huh. and that's because it's wetter on the west side, and they make their nests out of moss. And the entire Waterton Lakes National Park is east of the divide, but after I started Um, seeing where um, black swifts nested, and we started finding some east of the divide down here. I talked to the biologists up there, and I'm like, you know that one waterfall? That looks like perfect black swift habitat. I really think you should go look um, and see if you have them. And it's not an easy thing to do. If you go there midday, your chances of seeing a black swift are next to zero. And then we thought you had to be there the two hours before sunset when the adults would come back to feed the young. 
And that was sort of hit or miss. We recently learned that morning surveys, you literally get to the base of a waterfall in the dark before the first ray of light, mm. and often you can see the black swifts flying out. Oh, really? And we, they sent their biologists down here to train with Amy Seaman, the mm -hmm. biologist from Montana Audubon, who leads mm -hmm. their black swift surveys in the park. And they went out the first time they went out, they found a black swift colony, and they didn't even know they had that bird species in their park. Oh, uh -huh. oh that was super exciting. Oh, that yeah. really. Well, uh, Lisa, I think we've uh, run out of time, so uh, if you're willing, we'll do another half hour about bats. So thanks very much for talking to us about birds today. Okay, thank you, John. So our guest today has been thank Lisa Bate, wildlife biologist at Glacier National Park, and she's a specialist in birds and bats. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.